If you have been with us uh, for the past few months, I just want to start off by saying congratulations. We have made it through the tough work of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's not uh, easy passages to wrestle with. Uh, these are things that are difficult to understand and take a lot of fortitude to get through. And today we get to the highlight of Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have one, there should be one um, in the seat back in front of you. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 11 this morning. Now over the past few months, we have been reading the Corinthians mail, seeing every issue that is causing division, distraction, hurt, and maybe even some bitterness maybe even hate within the church that Paul's having to address between believers that are gathering together. And if you've found your way to chapter 15, we're not going to get to this point today, but if you look at verse 34, we will see kind of the linchpin of why Paul is bringing all of this together. In verse 34, it says this. This is what he's building up to. He says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. This morning, we are going to see that Paul is bringing them back to the foundation, or what he calls of first importance. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says this, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostle, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. But I know I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. This is the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there, that Christ died, but he brings it to Christ's resurrection. Whenever we preach Christ's death, we must have it in hand with his resurrection. Now, there are a lot of issues that we can get caught up in every Sunday, every week, in fact, and I am not immune to these. I get caught up in these issues myself. 
you know, what songs should we sing, or what are things that are going around the church that need help, or maybe we need to plug in more people to life groups, or maybe we need to change our Sunday school curriculum. Maybe it's too deep, not deep enough. Maybe uh, it's an argument over Calvinism or Arminianism. Maybe it's whether you think Christians should or should not drink alcohol. Maybe it's an argument about the end times, like post-trib, pre-trib, amillennial. We just got through the gifts, so that might be an argument. Do you believe the gifts exist? Do you, are they still active today? And we can get distracted by all of these things. And this is what Paul is addressing, a church who has been distracted by all of these different issues. But what Paul wants to very clearly remind them is what he's received is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And notice throughout this portion, Paul uses logic, reason, and argumentation. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to look at the argument that Paul is making by just seeing what he said here. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Let's first look at Christ Jesus. Our understanding of who Christ is and his nature is crucial to our, sta- our understanding of what Paul is saying. You see, Christ is both God and human. Christ is eternal, preexistent, the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the same sense and to the same degree as is the Father. Christ is not less than the Father, a sense in which no human has ever been or will ever be. So this is different than uh, Mormons who will say that we will become like God or we will become gods one day. This is not it. Christ Jesus is God and God alone. We will not reach divine status ourselves. Only God is. But Jesus is also man. Jesus' humanity means that his atoning death is applicable to us human beings. Jesus really was one of us. Think of your week this past week. Ways that you were tempted to maybe anger or bitterness, maybe tempted to sin. Maybe you had the full gamut of human emotions, pain, suffering, tears, anxiety. Maybe you felt joy, laughter, excitement, something new. Maybe you experienced loss. Jesus experienced all of this, yet without sin. And this Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, it means this, that Jesus is of infinite value, which means his death is of infinite worth. Hear me very clearly this morning. There is no sin that Christ's atoning death cannot save from. He can save you from any sin that you bring to him because Christ is ultimate. He is over all. He is of infinite value, and his death is of infinite worth. Jesus is full of life and love for his creation. It says this in Hebrews, that as God, Jesus did not have to die, yet he chose to for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. The creator God, Jesus, he knows everything at the macro level. He knows the tallest mountain peaks. He knows every inch of snow that falls there. He knows the depths of the ocean, all of the living creatures at the bottom that we've yet to discover. Jesus knows everything. But Jesus also knows us at the micro level. He knows our bodies better than us. He knows our thoughts, our feelings, everything. This Jesus Christ 
He is both God and man. And this is what makes this next word so astonishing, that Christ died. Even more astonishing is that Jesus' atoning death, uh, we must, uh, sorry, we must see Jesus' atoning death from the backdrop of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Hebrew word most commonly used for this type of atonement is kafar. And this word literally means to stand between one sin, to be between one sin and God. Meaning when an atoning sacrifice was made, God saw the sacrifice rather than the sin. The sacrifice was offered as a substitute for the sinner. It bore the sinner's guilt. The sacrificial animal had to be spotless and without blemish. And this is who we see God is, that Christ died for our sins. But to think about our sin today, right? to think about sin in the culture, our culture will ask the question, well, what even is sin? Who are we to say what sin is? People will try to minimize their sin, hide their sin. They will even attempt to say that there is no sin. But scripture says everything that is hidden will come to light. And sin in the scripture has a lot of definitions. First, the character of sin is to miss the mark. It is a standard in which we are to live up to, but we cannot live up to because of our sinful nature. Sin in the Bible is irreligion or the absence of righteousness. Sin is a transgression. It's a violation of trust to break an agreement or to break a relationship. Sin is iniquity, the lack of integrity, rebellion, treachery, perversion. And the consequences of sin are agitation, restlessness, evil, guilt, trouble, And all of this comes from an improper view of who God is. Sin is when we make anything more important or valuable or place anything in God's place in our hearts. If you don't believe me that sin is out there, just walk through the supermarket, look at the tabloid, look at the, the marches and the riots that happen all over our world. Aren't they all screaming that something is wrong? Something is broken, and Christ died for this. And what's of first importance for Paul is that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins means this. First, that Christ is the sacrifice. Hebrews says this, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that leads to death so that we may serve the living God? Christ is our ultimate and final sacrifice. Which means this, that Christ is our substitution. Remember what John says in his gospel when he sees Christ. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus in the gospel of Mark will say that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, at the very right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ is our sacrifice, he is our substitution, but it gets better, he's our reconciliation. Which means that he makes us right with the Father, which means we can have relationship with God. It means that you can approach him as Father. 
It says this in the scriptures, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Which means this. Christ died for our sins so we can come with confidence. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Because Christ died for our sins, we can come with confidence, but we can also come with reason. And I think this is the most fascinating portion of this text. It's not that Paul just recites the gospel truth, that Christ died and that he was resurrected for our sins according to the scripture, Paul uses logic and reason for us to see. Notice the list that he gives us here. He says, he then appeared to Cephas. You may know this name better as Peter. Peter the bold, the kind of guy that brings a sword to a prayer meeting. He cuts off a guy's ear right before Jesus is arrested. Peter the one who boldly tells Jesus that wherever you go, I will go. I will die for you. But when a little girl comes up to him and says, aren't you one of his followers? Peter says, I never knew the man. When she insists and pushes further and says, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you, you're a Galilean. You have to be one of his followers. And Peter doubles down again and says, I never knew the man. I don't know him. And then again, he's approached by some others that say, yes, you must be one of his followers. And what does Peter do? He curses. He curses his name and says, I've never known him. And then the rooster crows, he sees Jesus. What does Jesus do? He appears to this man, Peter. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So here's what Paul is saying. You don't believe me, go talk to them. They saw the risen Jesus. Then verse seven, he appeared to James. We've talked about this in our series uh, through James a few years ago, but the remarkable story that who James is. James is the brother of Jesus. And this James is the one who also thought Jesus was absolutely out of his mind. When Jesus was going, preaching from town to town, it says that his mother and his brothers came to him, pulling him out of the crowd, saying, he's lost his mind. He's out of it. This same James is the one who in John chapter 7, I believe it is, uh, I could be wrong on there, but it's somewhere in John, where Jesus is avoiding Judea because he knows there are men there that want him killed. It's his brothers that approach him. James, it says, a prophet should be known in his hometown. Why don't you go there? You know what it says next? Because his own brothers did not even believe in him. So how does this James change? How does he change from growing up with Jesus, watching Jesus, seeing his ministry from afar, thinking this guy is out of it, to being 
the first pastor in Jerusalem to being over the head of the church in Jerusalem. How does he go there? Because he saw the resurrected Christ. He saw him risen. Jesus appeared to the cowards, the doubters, the intolerant, and the violent. And this is what Paul wants us to remember, that wherever you are here, coward or doubter, intolerant, violent, that Christ has died for you. And this resurrection is fundamental to belief in Christ. And all of this is according to the scriptures. Now, what Paul doesn't give us here are just a list of scriptures for us to go and cross-check. Paul has a much bigger frame of reference, a bigger frame in mind. And it's the same as Jesus. I think I have it on the screen, uh, Luke 24, verses 45 through 49. This is Jesus after he has risen. He's meeting with his disciples and he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witness of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed from, with power from on high. So when we open up the Old Testament, we don't necessarily see a story about a Messiah who dies and rises again and has salvation in his name. But what we do see in the Old Testament is a foreshadow, things that point to this Messiah that's coming. Tim Keller said this about Jesus. Consider this Jesus, who is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden, and his obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is a true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is a true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me, now we can look at God, taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you truly love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love. Jesus is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a true and better rock of Moses who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes and who saves his dumb friends. Jesus is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, 
who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover land, innocence, perfect, helplessly slain, so the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. You see, when we open up the scriptures, we'll see Jesus everywhere as the true and better one. All of scripture connects to this Jesus. According to the scriptures, Psalm 69.6 will say things like this, that the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, God of Israel. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. How can we not be put to shame? It's because of this prophesied one, Jesus, who we can hope in and rest in. Jesus, when he's with his disciples in Matthew 12, he is walking and plucking grain on the Sabbath, and some Pharisees catch him, and they see him. And they bring to him this man whose hand is withered. And Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Smart, they don't answer. He says, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees plot how they're gonna kill Jesus. And Matthew ties this all in with a, a prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 42, where he says this, here is my servant in whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Here's what this means for us, very practically. If you are coming here this morning and you don't know if Jesus can love you, you don't know if he can see your sin or your, the life that you've lived and, and all you are is like a candle that has been blown out and the wick is just barely smoldering. It just has that little twinkle of a flame just still there. Jesus doesn't come and pinch it out and snuff it out. No, he brings it back to life in him. You, us who come to Jesus, we have our hope in him. So here's what this means. It means something objectively true for us and subjectively true for us. If we confess Jesus is Lord, and really not, if we don't confess Jesus is Lord, this is still, some of these are still true like this. Christ rules over the natural universe both in creation and its preservation. By the word of his power, he created it, and by the word of his power, he upholds it. Christ rules presently over the kingdom of God, which is present in the church. Christ rules over the lives of believers who live under his lordship. Christ's future rule will be all-encompassing and without end, and this is given to us freely because Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. Now, if I was a betting man, I would most likely say that you have heard a sermon like this, if not once, probably a thousand times in your life, if you are a church-going person. 
that Jesus loves you, he died for you, he wants you to live in his new life, and all of this has a way of like hitting us in the head, but how do we move it from the head to the heart? How do we take a message that we've heard a lot in our lives as church-going people, how we, we hear some version of the gospel probably every Sunday that we gather about Jesus' love for us and our salvation in him, how do we move it from our head to our heart? I have three ways for us to do that this morning. The first way that we move the gospel from our head to our heart is to deal with sin. It's to deal with the sin in your life. Look at what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews says, that we can draw near with confidence, but this is what he also says. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I cannot peer into each of your lives and in your mind and what goes on in your heart. I don't know the habits or the, just the sin that our hearts can find such great temporary joy in that is fleeting, that most likely makes us end up feeling worse than before. But here's how we move it from our head to our heart, is to deal with it, to kill it, to throw it off. How you do this is you name it, you put it in the light. Let others see it and know what it is. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. There is nothing that he cannot save you from. Deal with your sin that so easily entangles us. The second is this is to plant seeds of truth in your life, or rather, just to preach the gospel to ourselves. Remind us of this gospel. Paul says this in Galatians. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Verse nine, let us not become weary in, in doing good. What does Paul mean here? Well, first we know that it can be wearisome continuing to walk a life um, of trying to stay on the straight and narrow, to deal with our sin, to walk in kindness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It can be hard. Consider the life within the church and, and people that uh, might just continually want to bring us down at work or in our life. It can be hard to continue to show them the life and love of Jesus. And Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. And then the third thing, so to move this from our head to heart is to deal with sin, preach the gospel to ourselves, don't grow weary of doing good. But the third way is this, to plug into the church. My fear for us is that we will get into a habit. And the fear for me is that I will just get into a habit of making Sunday morning the only time I'm plugging in with the body. Where we come in for an hour or two at a time, we sing a couple of songs, we open the scriptures together and we leave and we never talk about it again until next Sunday. But Paul says this in Galatians. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
How do you restore a person? How are you restored from sin unless you are in the church? Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. How can we carry each other's burdens? By knowing each other's burdens. How can we carry them and know them? By being in relationship with one another. This Sunday, we're not doing church. We are the church. We are the church where the spirit of the living God dwells among us. And for us to move this from our head to our heart, what the gospel has done and what means for us, we must not grow weary in doing good. We must not grow weary in carrying uh, the burdens of one another. We must not grow weary of restoring people gently. We must not grow weary of confessing our sin. We must not grow weary of doing good and following Jesus and preaching the gospel to ourselves. So this morning, I want to offer a very, just a very simple invitation because it is. Paul starts by saying at the very top, let me get to it, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. How do we hold firmly to a word? How do we know if we're believing in vain? Well, one way that we can check to see if we're believing in vain is if we are more secure in our accomplishments of doing well than we are in the work of Christ. So in other words, I feel better about myself or I feel like I have a level of righteousness when I continue doing all of these good things that God must be proud of me, someone must see me. No, it's only in the work of Jesus alone. You see what the church at Corinth had the temptation of doing and why Paul is so insistent on reminding them of the resurrection is because they were starting to doubt the resurrection. They believed that they were spiritual people that had already arrived. But the hope of the gospel is this, is it is difficult, as hard as this life is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And as he died and rose again, that same power lives in you if you believe. That when you die, you will rise again and be with Christ Jesus. So the invitation this morning is if you have not laid down your sins, if you need to confess Jesus as Lord for the first time, I invite you to come and, and talk to me after the service. If you've never done this, just come sit right on the front row after we sing, after we dismiss. We'll come and we'll sit and we'll talk about what Jesus' death means for you and how we can walk in his freedom, life, and love. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we not see the gospel as good advice, but that we see it as what it truly is, as good news. And that you came uh, to save sinners, that Christ, that you died to save sinners, and that that includes all of us in this room. And so as we transition to taking the bread and the cup, I, I pray that it be a very physical reminder for us of your body broken and your blood spilled for us. Father, that we rejoice and that we hope in this gospel, that we not get tired of repeating it to ourselves, that we not grow weary in doing good, but Father, that you fill us by your spirit and that you lead us by your spirit. Father, help us not to boast in anything other than the cross of Christ. Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning 
that this be a matter of first importance for all of us. Father, that we deal with our sin and we hang it on the cross. We bring it to you. And that, Father, that you stand in the place for us, being our sacrifice, substitution, and reconciliation. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.